0: Welcome to Data I'm Susan Wong.
1: And I'm Jesse Chiseski kay Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you or to bring you closer to statistics. Now this includes topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow.
0: Indeed. We'll start defining these terms in some future episodes, but in the meantime, Jesse, it's time for an update on the selection committee decisions for college
1: football playoffs. Yes, it is. Uh, For those of you who listened to our last episode, which was also our first episode, um, you may recall that we discussed a bit about the college football playoff selection committee which was going to be announcing the results of the four teams that will be in the um, the college football playoffs. And then the winning teams from each of those games will play in the national championship game. And so on Sunday, indeed, they did release the results. And the um, number one ranked team is Alabama, which was not really a surprise. Uh, they ended up beating Georgia on Saturday in the um, the SEC um, championship game uh, number two is Clemson number three is Notre Dame and number four is Oklahoma and so, so are any of these four teams new to the college playoffs um, I don't know about new historically I mean Alabama and Clemson are very common uh, <laughs> They they tend to um, to make it in these top seats. Um, Notre Dame certainly has a number of times before, um, and Oklahoma was the um, I'd say Oklahoma was mostly the unknown. It was um, going to come down to Oklahoma, Ohio State, and Georgia seemed to be the kind of the, the three that people were debating about. And uh, and actually, if we think about or if we look at some of the um, the other rankings that we discussed last time, we'll see that uh, some different teams actually ended up in the in the top four. Uh, for example, the um, the Massey Peabody um, ranking that we discussed last week, which um, they used the the four statistics, one for rushing, one for passing, one for scoring, and one for play success, and then try to um, to weight those appropriately. Um, they actually ended up with um, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Michigan as the top four followed by Ohio State and um, and then Oklahoma. And then Notre Dame was actually uh, number eight. So, so that was kind of, that was interesting. Um, the, there are several reasons why it's interesting. And for those who are curious, you can just look back at Ohio State's record, Michigan's record, uh, and then Notre Dame's record. Uh, so Notre Dame, uh, I won't get into it. I'll, I'll go on and on if I get started. But, <laughs> That's um, a sign
0: of a true football fan. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah. Look at the records. It actually you can um, by looking at the the records for this year, uh, this season. You'll you'll see how um, maybe certain methods ended up emphasizing more the um, kind of the the strength of the schedule and um, more so than maybe some other characteristics. Um, and then also per- perhaps um, some also emphasize the um, the margin of victory against common opponents. So those would be some key things to look at if you're curious. Um, and, then, and then also the ESPN football power index, which um, we noted last time, they run these um, simulations and they try to predict the game outcomes, not the rankings per se um they had Alabama as number one then clemson then georgia then michigan then ohio state then oklahoma then notre dame and i should also maybe at this point make a minor a minor note that i'm a notre dame alumni and i'm a notre dame fan and so when they don't put notre dame in the top four it's a little bit disappointing but that's okay um, the official ranking has notre dame as number three so they We'll actually be playing Clemson in the Cotton Bowl on um, December 29th. So I'm looking forward to that. We know who you're going to be rooting for. <laughs> yes, go Irish. <laughs> <laughs> so those of us who like to travel on airplanes <laughs> may begin to really start noticing that, um, that airlines are using some new technology. Um, in particular, I came across this article about um, JetBlue, who um, it has been partnering with U.S. Customs and using what's known as um, biometric boarding. And so what, um, what they've done is um, they have been using facial recognition technology um, for passengers that are boarding planes. Um, they've been testing this in several locations, um, like Boston, Fort Lauderdale, JFK, Uh, There might have been some others too, but um, but the the goal then is that a passenger can board a plane, they get a picture taken, um, the picture then is matched against some database, and uh, if the um, identity is um, matched, then they board the plane. And so what they're claiming is that um, this new technology can be helpful for um, just making the... The boarding process a bit um, a bit faster, a bit more streamlined, and um, and they're also noting that by by doing this, um, it might also help somehow to keep the um, the airline ticket price down for the consumer. I guess that's that, very optimistic. Yes, yes. We'll we'll see if it actually filters through that way. But um, but uh, so this has been going on with JetBlue since um, some point in 2017, and apparently they've had more than 50,000 customers use this. And, um, and now they're actually uh, um, launching it, it for real at, at JFK. It's for, um, it's in the international terminal. So uh, if, if you ever are taking a JetBlue flight out of JFK, you might actually be exposed to this um, facial recognition technology. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that, uh, a nice, uh, interesting change, I guess, with the, um, the travel, the airline travel process.
0: And I think that the real time savings will come through when they also have check-in and security screening also done in this way. Uh, but right now, boarding the plane, that's the easy part. Yeah. At least maybe maybe from a Southwest flyer, frequent flyer, that's how I think of it. Um, but yeah, I see also that there are other airports and airlines getting on board with this sort of thing. Atlanta just launched their first, quote, curb-to-gate curb biometric terminal. And they're using this kind of technology for everything, starting from check-in, dropping off your bags to sort of to check those in through security and so on. And they just opened uh, – this is in partnership with Delta – And the question that I would ask is who is this ultimately benefiting? I guess it's making our lives easier because we have to hold less things and show less things. But some, some of it is kind of creepy, isn't it, Jesse?
1: Yeah. So in this article, they, um, I'll just read the the quote. Um, it says our research shows nearly seven in 10 U S airline passengers are comfortable sharing their biometric data with airlines and governments for travel purposes, Provided their data is kept safe and not used for marketing, and it's uh, I, I see a lot of pros and cons for it. Like there's the pro, which is you know maybe it does speed things up. Maybe it is more convenient. Um, maybe I mean I guess the, the hope too is it somehow um, makes makes the um, airline travel more secure if um, if that contributes beneficially in that way, I think, and think that's great. But then there's this con with all this personal data. Um, who has it? How is it protected? Can other people easily break in and get access to it? So it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. How do you feel, Susan?
0: Yeah, I, I have the same exact feelings. And when I read articles like this, it's interesting that somewhere in there, they will bury a sentence that says, uh, that the data comes from photos that are curated by the US Customs and Border Protection. And so, first of all, I wonder are, where do they get those pictures from? Is it coming from my driver's license? Is it coming from? my passport and and we know those are never the f- most flattering photos of ourselves. So, so then I also <laughs> worry that it's not going to check out when I actually want to go and check in, right? If I want to check in, I'm in a rush and boom, I failed my scan. Now I almost feel like a criminal. Uh, which by the way, this article about Atlanta uh, airport said that they have a 98% success rate. So um, even even you know a hundred people who walk through the door, two of them are probably gonna get denied because their image doesn't get um, doesn't get rendered according to what's in their data database. So I would hate to be the kind of person who gets singled out, and I would worry about um, I guess exactly where this data is coming from, what else they're doing with it, and how they're doing quality control to ensure that none of it gets leaked. Um, well, nowadays, so often data sets or data databases get hacked, and and all sorts of things go to the wrong individuals online. So, it makes you worry.
1: Yeah, it does. Well, ho- yeah, hopefully they're make, um, taking the appropriate measures to secure the data. Um, but yeah, you just never know, I guess. <laughs> Indeed. But yeah, I guess we'll we'll see what happens. I'm I'm kind of curious to um, to actually see how the tech I guess to see the technology in action. <laughs> So maybe I'll have to take a flight out of JFK Terminal 5 sometime soon.
0: Yeah, and and make sure that you look exactly like any government photo ID of you.
1: Yeah, well, so that's a really interesting point because it gets into the facial recognition technology, for example, and like how robust it is to, um, to changes in facial expression and hairdos and makeup and I don't know, whatever else people want to do to their face. But uh, I'll always, I'll have my IDs with as well, of course. But
0: cool. I guess something to look forward to. Yes. (laughs) So uh, Jesse, I switched from an iPhone to a Google phone recently, and I'm still getting used to it, admittedly. One of the features on this phone that is kind of interesting to me and something I want to talk about is called smart replies. Um, Last week, my husband was traveling for work, and he would text me at certain times things like have a good night or talk to you tomorrow. And my phone would just funnily recommend short responses. (laughs) So without me typing anything, when I received this text, talk to you tomorrow, um, it would would recommend that I respond with miss you or a smiley emoji. (laughs) So it's not that I didn't feel that way in those moments, I did miss him and I did want to smile back, but really I thought about it and those are not things I would have said in the moment. But I think I said them anyway because it was just a click away, and that was much (laughs) faster than having to type out a full response. Convenience. Very Um, convenience. Yeah. Um, So, you know, the thing is, if you have a Gmail account, Jesse, you probably have seen this as well, that when you get emails nowadays, you'll get auto replies or or sort of three little buttons at the bottom of your email sometimes that says, uh, click on a button here for a quick
1: response that will do or sounds good. Have you yeah, seen that at all? I, I actually, I, I have seen that. I mean, almost every email, I think it it suggests something, and um, I I don't maybe once I used it, but I have found that it's. Um, I, I usually want to expand. I'm not. I'm not very good at like two two word responses. <laughs> I totally agree. So
0: this is kind of something I use for texting because texting is meant to be instantaneous and they're really short snippets and you could always elaborate in a subsequent text anyway. Um, but, But the thing that's in common with this Gmail feature as well as with the text feature is that I feel that Gmail has this, or Google in fact, has a positive impression of what we should be saying what we should be feeling like everything that it recommends has this polite courteous warm and fuzzy positive feeling about it and even when the responses are negative like for example when somebody asked a question over email the recommended response one of the options was i don't know sorry with an exclamation point mm-hmm. and i thought wow that's like a really
1: polite way of saying i just didn't get your question at all <laughs> you know what, what's funny is um yeah, I, I feel like seeing the responses that Google suggests often does, though, stop me and it like come almost, it makes me think, oh, I should be positive instead of, you know, sometimes you get e- emails that aren't necessarily the best to respond to and you'd maybe want to be a bit more negative, but it's like, oh, it's positive. Okay, I should be positive too. <laughs> so <laughs> Google,
0: Google is, is making us better people. And if that's true, yeah. then I, I'd say we should definitely be behind them.
1: <laughs> I, I think that's the conclusion here. <laughs>
0: But what it got me thinking about is that Google actually could do more than just respond with these sort of um, positive, generically positive messages, right? Like, so if I'm a gloomy person, which I think I'm not, but if I were, uh, in theory, Google could figure that out from all the emails that it's been reading from me over the years or reading the text that I've sent out. And it could actually learn my mannerisms, Hmm. There is this thing called artistic style transfer. It's an application of deep learning and the whole idea is you get to adjust a particular content to a particular style. So a common example online, you can google this up um, Starry night artistic style transfer or neural styles transfer the two terms for the same thing and you end up finding all these images that are cityscapes like San Francisco or Paris, and they're transformed into paintings that look like Van Gogh's Starry Night. So really what's, what this is doing is taking a content image, possibly a photo, and then combining that with a style image um, where it's going to recognize the textures, the strokes, that are characteristic of that uh, painting, for example, and then it combines them together so that you get to your content image to look just like it was painted by
1: Van Gogh, for example. That is really cool.
0: It's really cool. And yet, if we think about, you know, Google could do this, right? They, they are all about deep learning and applying it in different ways, but if they had done it. and literally composed text messages. That sounded like what I would say. It could get a little creepy.
1: Yes. As a matter of fact, it's not Jesse speaking now, but a deep learning network. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) We should should cut that out. No, we shouldn't.
0: (laughs) If we had figured that out by episode two, then I think we are geniuses. We wouldn't have to record anything more going forward.
1: I know. We just we just give it the articles we think are interesting and then have it record for us. Exactly. The sound
0: quality would be perfect in that case. There's yeah. no editing to be done. Right. It could probably be a lot more
1: humorous than we can on the fly. Almost certainly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then there yeah, the creepy it the creepiness is that it it would have to read the email, all our emails, which like, you know, probably does that anyway, but like (laughs) read our emails enough to like, really understand us. And like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll we'll have to think
0: about this one. It's, it's encouraging the right kind of um, uh, means of speech for us right now where we're sort of writing more positively because we see these default replies, but probably shouldn't go any further than that.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I guess the thing to look out for is if the responses get really, they, they end up being really, um, very much like things that we would respond, um, what that implies about what they're doing with our other emails. <laughs> yes. That, that indeed
0: would be something that, that they could get in legal trouble
1: with. Yes. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, very interesting, very interesting, um, potential of I actually kind of want to go get now a self-portrait of um, done by an, one of my favorite artists, which I guess I would have to pick out who my favorite artist is. Van Gogh could be neat. A self-portrait done by Van Gogh.
0: You could definitely do that. There are all these websites and I'll try to link some um, that literally you just put up a picture of yours and, um, and then you choose a style and then you can get your rendered
1: image in oh. seconds. Excellent. I will look into that. So, so Susan, I recently came across this article, and um, it's titled, A Data Scientist Cracks the Code to Landing on the New York Times Bestseller List. And this is, um, so it's an article written by, um, by a professor, um, his name is Albert. I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, but Albert Laszlo Barabasi, who's the Robert Gray Dodge Professor of Network Science at Northeastern University, and along with one of his postdocs, um, Bursu U- Ucessary, uh, they did a, <laughs> I'm sorry, I butchered all the names, um, but um, they did this interesting study about um, investigating the um, kind of the, the patterns of, um, of books and authors on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, so the article was originally pu- published on um, theconversation.com and this, it was, this was the end of November and um and it's pretty interesting i uh it looks like what they ended up doing is they gathered the data on um on the books that made it to the bestseller list between august 6 20 or 20 2008 to march 10th 2016 and they were just trying to find some some patterns in the data and there ended up being let's see um, there ended up being 2,025 nonfiction books and uh, 2,468 fiction books that they were analyzing. Um, they made some um, some interesting points, and one of the uh, kind of the major points was the um, were the genres of the books that um, that make it on the list. And they had pointed out that. Um, that most of the nonfiction titles that make it on the New York Times bestseller list are memoirs and biographies. And um, that made up almost half of the 2025 nonfiction bestseller list um, books. And then for the fiction, so, um, one, uh, some large percentage, I, they report 67% of all fiction titles were from um, what they call plot driven genres like mystery or romance. So I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. And they, um, they discuss some other details. Um, they note that there is a universal sales curve. So apparently when a book is released, so the publication date, there's actually a pretty short window um, for the books where books typically um, would, pretend, or where the books would have potential to make it onto the New York Times bestseller list. And it's like on the order of, of weeks. And so sometimes there's this perception like, oh, you know, a, a book will kind of gain steam and um, after a year they'll have a big audience and then um, they'll sell so many books because it's become so popular. And they basically say that doesn't really happen. And um, after a year, um, a year after publishing, um, very, very few books actually get, um, get sold. So they found this, um, this interesting shape about, um, about how the how books sell, and um, they note that also this um, the types of books, or I should say, the number of books required in a week to um, to be sold in order to make it on the New York Times bestseller list changes throughout the year. Where when you hit the the holiday season, like what we're approaching now, you have to sell um, a lot more books in a week to make it onto the New York Times bestseller list than um, I think they said February or March and um, where there aren't as many books generally sold, and so you don't have to sell as many to make it on the list. So there are a lot of interesting points. Um, One other interesting statistic that was actually only perfectly related to the main points of the article, (laughs) were that um, they reported that the average American reads 12 or 13 books in a year.
0: Oh, my God. That Uh, is not me.
1: Yeah, right. Okay. So I read that and I was like, what? There's no way that's true. And so then I Google it and I try to find it. And sure enough, there's a a Pew Research study that had confirmed that it's about um, 12 or 13 books on average. But then they said only um, the median number is four. That's I, a huge uh, difference. It's <laughs> a huge difference, and you know, I feel like I, I totally got fooled by that. And you know, how many times in a class do we say, you know, the the mean is not robust to outliers, and you know, the mean can get pulled in the direction of outliers. And uh, this was a case where that um, that really does seem to happen. So the mean- I'm
0: curious about their sample size as well.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, that, that's true, true. There, there's lots of things that, that we could question about it, but I just felt like it was it's kind of like the oldest trick in the book, the mean versus the median. And, uh, and anyway, yeah, so it's an interesting study. It really did, though, lead me to um, to kind of want to dive in more and, um, and ask a, a additional questions about what they were doing because they – One could read this and interpret it as, "Oh, um, it's mostly um, mysteries and romance novels that make it onto the bestseller list. Therefore, if I want to make it on the bestseller list, I should write a mystery or a romance novel." And um, and that's just not necessarily the case because we don't know what the actual population size is of the books that are written within the particular genres. This is really just a summary of which books had made it onto the bestseller list and, um, you know, summarizing some interesting points about it. But um, but there do not seem to be any details about the actual population of the books that could have made it onto the list.
0: So you're saying like if we had, you know, if, if 90% of all books ever published were mystery or romance, then the fact that 67% of the ones on the bestsellers are mystery or romance just isn't that impressive.
1: Exactly, exactly. Or it could be that there are really few of them, and it's actually quite remarkable that so many are on. It's just we don't really know without that additional background information. And so I'd be curious um, if that could ever be built in, if um, people had access to that sort of data, that would be interesting. And then also, it'd be interesting to see how the sales sales patterns by genre change across a year. Like are are people buying more romance novels at the beginning of the summer than they are, oh. you know, at the beginning of January, for example? So there, I don't, there's it seems like an interesting data set with lots of different, um, lots of different angles to investigate. So it could be a good class project or something like that, but we'll have to yeah. see.
0: That's, that's a good point. In fact, I feel like nowadays, you know, we could potentially think about generating other features that describe books. So instead of just looking at the broad categories of fiction, nonfiction, mystery or romance, um, there's maybe even other things, other characteristics is the main protagonist female or male, right. Or, you know, a lot of these different features that could be considered. So I, I would totally consider doing that for a class project.
1: Yeah. You're really thinking like a data scientist. I like it.
0: (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Jesse. I've lived up to my name, (laughs) to my profession. (laughs) Yes. Great job. (laughs) Well, that's all the time that we have for this episode. Thank you again for listening to Data Bytes.
1: Yeah. If you have any suggestions or comments for us, please visit our website. Um, Our website is databytespodcast.github.io. And so if you have any um, comments, questions um, that you'd like to address, or uh, maybe you come across an interesting study that you want us to discuss, um, please do fill out the, um, the comment form on that page.
0: Or even if you have an idea for a new episode, we are always open to ideas like that.
1: Yes, definitely. So till next time.
0: Bye, guys. Bye.